This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Uh, more than a billion people worldwide, including in the U.S., lack access to basic healthcare, regardless of today's expensive distribution networks. In business, this is referred to as the last mile problem. Uh, in order to close the healthcare gap, many private sector players are playing a leading role in enhancing access to healthcare services for the world's most secluded and vulnerable populations. In this episode of From Backstreet to Wall Street, uh, Doreen Shanaz, founder of Impact Investment Exchange, and Knowledge at Wharton will speak to global healthcare leaders on how businesses are rising to the challenge. Uh, we're going to speak first with Mr. Omar Ishraq, CEO of Medtronic. Uh, Medtronic has its operational headquarters in Minneapolis and is among the world's largest medical technology services and solutions companies. Uh, it, has, it employs more than 84,000 people worldwide, and the company is focused on collaborating with stakeholders around the world to take healthcare further together. Uh, Mr. Shrak, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Doreen, may I turn to you to ask the first question? Absolutely. So thank you very much, Mr. Shrak, for joining the show. So I will actually rump, jump sort of right in and, uh, and ask you about the Medtronic's mission, which, if I can read it, it says uh, to contribute to human welfare by application of medical engineering in the research, design, manufacture, and sale of instruments or appliances that alleviate pain, restore health, and extend life. So how inclusive has this mission been in terms of human welfare for Medtronics? Can you give us some examples? And I, I imagine what you mean by inclusive is uh, how, um, how widespread our interest is uh, amongst uh, people who need care. Um, from a... Um, from an importance perspective, I can tell you that the company really uh, drives all its strategies or derives all its strategies from that mission statement, which actually, if I break it down, has a number of components. Uh, the first component is that, uh, indeed, we want to contribute to human welfare, and we, in fact, in the last phrase, define what we mean by that, which is to alleviate pain, restore health, and extend life, which is very specific as to what we want to do. In other words, we're a technology company because we want to use biomedical engineering to improve outcomes of patients around the world. And um, the, the, the two things there that are worth, worth uh, noting, first, it is outcomes-based, so we're not done by simply developing technology and hoping that people get better with it, but in fact ensuring through different uh, activities that people actually do alleviate their pain and restore their health or extend their life. But in addition, what this means is uh, it means for people everywhere, everywhere in the world, not just uh, developed markets or it's easy to get, but everywhere. And so, um, you know, we operate uh, globally in over 160 countries. Uh, we um, are continuously uh, growing. The emerging markets growth is one of our uh, biggest opportunities, both from a business as well as a societal perspective. Uh, we state that publicly that this is uh, the biggest single opportunity that there is uh, to help people to fulfill our mission and from a business perspective. I've got to say, though, that, um, um, you know, we still have a long way to go, uh, a really okay. long way. In fact, the journey is in its infancy, if you take it in full context. The number of people who do not get health care that is already available and mature versus people who do get health care, uh, that ratio is... Uh, just completely, um, uh, you know, uh, com is huge. It's, it's, it's literally billions of people do not get health care that they should get um, the, versus the ones that, that they do. And although we think we spend a lot on health care. So, so, you know, I can talk to... about that, but I can tell you that we take this thing seriously. We are, we are trying to drive emerging market growth everywhere. Uh, I, I think there is uh, more detail I can uh, I can talk about in terms of specifically what we're doing, but this is not just a matter of just showing up with stuff. It's a matter of um, training people, educating people, uh, creating awareness, uh, and, right. and different of investments. So looking at it in a more holistic way, and I think uh, I definitely want to, we want to find out more about the work that you're doing in the emerging markets, but before going to the emerging markets, um, let's 
spend a few minutes in the U.S. I mean, I, I know our listeners uh, will be curious to know in terms of this sort of holistic way of looking at healthcare, um, how is that sort of touching every part of the community in the U.S. Um, with Medtronic's work? Well, you know, the same way. The, the ratios are, are more favorable in the U.S. in that uh, the majority of people actually do get care, but a significant minority do not. And uh, we are also addressing that population. Uh, but in the U.S., it's as much a matter of, um, of uh, funding in the healthcare system as to how you create sustainable funding so that people who are underserved actually get the service of creating some local infrastructure so that the facilities that, and, and funding that's already available is actually accessible to a vast majority of people. And, and to some degree, uh, you've got to sort of customize the solution based on the needs. But the two big groups of, uh, of needs in the U.S. are underserved um, areas in major cities, uh, mm -hmm. as well as uh, rural locations which are far away uh, from many other big centers. Uh, they are both underserved, but they offer uh, different challenges in that uh, what we need to do to address those, what, what types of work we need to do to address those. So uh, the U.S. Um, is also a, a, a priority, obviously, for us. Um, it is much more integrated with our normal work. There are others who are also driving that, others meaning from the government, from state governments, uh, uh, we need to coordinate with that and create a sustainable structure through which these twin problems of underserved communities within big cities and remote locations are both addressed. So in terms of, uh, and that is a good point, in terms of sort of the remote location, which of course is applicable even in the emerging markets. I mean, do you see um, with Medtronic's work, you know, going into new fields of sort of the whole mobile technology and looking at, you know, healthcare as a kind of remotely uh, accessible um, through various technology that was not available. I mean, is that something that Medtronic sees the future in, that this is going to be more expensive in terms of uh, creating a more inclusive healthcare system? What's your thought around well, that? Well, you know, I think um, throwing technology at this by itself is not going to work uh, because although there are similarities between uh, remote locations in the United States and remote, remote locations elsewhere, there are major differences. Uh, you know, the, the, in the United States, the availability to uh, high-quality care, the willingness for uh, different authorities to fund uh, emergency care of different sorts, uh, you know, there are orders of magnitude different in the United States and in under, underdeveloped countries. So they may be rural, but the, uh, the closest uh, help is a lot more sophisticated and in many ways more closer. So equating them, I think, um, is okay in a, in a conceptual fashion, but the details of the solution are completely different. And um, there may be some elements which you can transfer and learning and so on, but by and large, these are different. Uh, different problems that need to be customized. And, and, and that's the, uh, the um, uh, one uh, comment that I will make very strongly in that it's dangerous in healthcare to think that there is a uh, magic bullet that will solve all problems, that is some kind of remote technology will solve everything. It just isn't that straightforward. And uh, technology has to be used for an application uh, to solve a very specific problem. And sure, remote technology gives you that extra capability, but just building things building some kind of uh, local infrastructure without thinking what exact problem you're trying to solve, what disease you're trying to address, which population right. are you trying to address, and what are the circumstances around that population needs to be very granular and specific. Uh, and it can be, because in healthcare, even if you go granular, the scale available is still big because the problem is so big. I don't need to solve a common problem across the whole world to get scale. I can solve a problem in rural Minnesota and get scale. Because, uh, because the problem is so big, not, not to speak of uh, underdeveloped countries where the populations are much bigger. Right. Now, I'm really so, glad, I'm glad you're saying this because, um, and, uh, you know, because that is precisely uh, the way you know, we should be looking at it because, again, technology is just a means, and we have to be looking at it in a holistic way. And I mm -hmm. think that sort of you know, begs me to ask you about the work that Medtronics is doing with your... Uh, for example, with the Applied Innovation Lab, I mean, um, it is, you know, it is a fantastic way to, 
to look at sort of low-cost devices and sort of seeing what the need is of the market. Do you want to talk, tell us, our audience, a little bit about that, the work that you're doing? Um, yeah, let me, let me tell you that, uh, but, but before I do that, just uh, uh, to, to give you a little grounding on, um, on some of the uh, basic principles of providing care, and then I think the, uh, the focus of the Applied Innovation Lab will become clearer. Um, as we do this, and I talked about the granularity and the specificity of solutions, but there's some basic principles that need to be applied. Uh, and okay. the, the basic principles that need to be applied are the following. You know, first, uh, there is um, a need to coordinate the solution. Uh, in general, there's awareness of patients. Patients need to know that, look, if they've got dizziness uh, and they're old, it's not just because they're old and things like that happen, but something actually can be done. And so, um, you know, awareness, patient awareness creation is an important element. Infrastructure creation, in other words, uh, you know, how can you get this thing treated? Is there a facility? Is there a hospital? Is there a primary care office? Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is important. And thirdly, the training of people who house those that infrastructure is important. Are there doctors? Are there skilled enough doctors for specific types of problems? Uh, you can get doctors who do the diagnosis, but when there's an issue and they need to be treated, is a doctor available who can treat them? So awareness, infrastructure, and training are common elements that need to be resolved in healthcare. And what's important here, especially when you're trying to solve a problem this big, is that the three need to be coordinated. So if you go to a large country or in any particular situation, you've got to make sure that the people who train, you, you, you make aware, are people where they have local infrastructure, and that's where you invest in the infrastructure, where you're doing the awareness creation. That's where you do the physician training, where you've built the infrastructure. So have these things coordinated is extremely important to get quick results. So having said that, the Applied Innovation Lab, then, uh, what we do there is to um, really develop technologies, technologies which can fit into these other structures that we then talk about, which are geared around awareness, infrastructure, and training, so that the value of those technologies in healthcare, in terms of um, our mission of, um, of, uh, of uh, alleviating pain, restoring health, and extending life, can be, can be reached through that technology. So the same thing that we have for our core business, except this, in this area, we're really talking about the underserved. That's one thing that we need to do. So come up with medical technologies that fit into uh, an infrastructure which we also then develop, which can take advantage of that technology and alleviate pain, restore health, and extend life among a very, in a very specific way in a very specific uh, population. And then we scale that to other populations. So the, the difference between uh, this and other sort of technology activities is that it is in, intimately tied to the delivery of healthcare, the, not only the technology, but its delivery of, uh, of the value of that technology to people as well is as important as the technology itself. Uh, so that, that's uh, one big element. The other big difference between um, this and the rest of our business, because frankly we do that in the rest of our business too, is that this is focused on the underserved, and second, any margins that we make here are reapplied for uh, further uh, scaling. So in other words, we view this as a, as a non-for-profit and, uh, you know, something that you've uh, worked on yourself, is that the measure of this is impact. So any extra money right. that we make here is put back in to increase impact simply through increased scaling because the opportunity is big enough to achieve that. So the, that's the way in which we're, uh, we're going to do this. Um, the specifics of the technology will vary. It could be a therapy itself. It could be... Uh, it could be some kind of remote uh, monitoring or whatever, but at the end of the day, it has to have an impact on people, and maybe uh, the therapy alone is useless without remote monitoring or some kind of uh, way in which it can be communicated to a physician who can actually do something about it. So, so Mr. Shrak, so just, just to, just to um, jump in for our audience um, to give them some perspective. So, um, so Medtronics is going into these you know, emerging countries and looking at the population that the need that they have, you're creating the infrastructure that's needed. Um, and then providing the obviously the this holistic healthcare in terms of awareness creation and training the people and then providing the device. Now that's an incredible amount of upfront cost that 
Medtronic has taken on. Um, why is Medtronic doing that? I mean, obviously not every Fortune 500 company is doing this. Why are you doing it? Well, you know, first of all, in the scheme of things, the upfront cost isn't that much. I mean, it's there, but it's not the end of the world. We spend a lot of money doing a lot of things. And at the end of the day, the goal here is that this becomes self-sustaining anyway because uh, you are creating something that uh, is, uh, is self-funding because you're creating an ecosystem which is viable from a healthcare perspective. And so um, <clears throat> we don't look at it that way. I, th I think the, the bottom line in the end is that uh, it is our mission to, uh, like you said right up front, right. Uh, for, for increasing human welfare to everybody which in is, the world. Which is, uh, which is supremely admirable, and that's why, I mean, I just, we were, and this is how, this is something obviously you are absolutely, you know, preaching your, I mean, you're practicing what you're, what you're saying in your mission, and which is, which is amazing. Now, in terms of the work that you're doing globally, and obviously it looks like you are uh, touching every different, you know, community group, um, do you work also with third parties who can allow you to do this work more effectively? I mean, how do you sort of, you know, bring all of this together as a CEO of this massive, massive organization? And make well, sure we you're really need third parties because we can't build all the infrastructure ourselves. So we work with others. We work with other uh, uh, providers. We work with other technology companies who may have uh, uh, complementary technologies. We work with, uh, uh, you know, providers, uh, physicians themselves. So um, we'll never do this on our own. So we work uh, very closely with others, uh, but, but we're very specific. You know, we really like to think, because, the, the, like I said earlier, it's so easy to get uh, entangled in creating infrastructure and then nothing happens because one hasn't thought through the entire value chain. We look at very specific uh, problems, and we solve those specific problems. And in the journey of solving those problems, we engage whoever, um, you know, is uh, thinking the same way and can add value uh, to that solution, whether it be a provider, whether it be another technology company, whether it be a physician, whether it may be a government. So uh, we try to first start with what problem are we trying to solve, how are we going to solve it, design that, uh, that schematic, if you like, and then figure out how we're going to do that, how much of it is technology, how much of it we can do, how much of it others can do, how much of it is training, et cetera. And how, how uh, receptive do you see your partners being in terms of this inclusive approach and bringing in all the, you know, sort of the, the various communities as you are doing, you know, in your solution? I mean, uh, I do you think, see you're influencing uh, the partners to think the same way? Um, you know, frankly, it's hard work uh, because the, uh, the, the general uh, approach amongst uh, most um, entities is to just kind of look at their own thing and not look at the overall solution. Um, and, and so uh, this requires quite a bit of aligning. It happens, but it doesn't happen automatically. You really have to engage people, uh, get them motivated about the same problem, and then line it all up. So uh, it is a lot of hard work, and it, you just don't show up and you know, kind of uh, put an ad out or something and people will show up. It, it really is thinking through the issue, doing research in that marketplace, seeing who else is available, and then uh, the, the alignment of interests is so important that um, it, it's just not going to happen by itself. You, you really got to work hard to first uh, isolate the problem and then work it. Go visit the place, find out who's available, who's really interested, and you have to be pretty rigorous about not diverting from that singular focus of trying to solve that problem and get sidetracked into doing something else. Uh, so I think, um, you know, once people are aligned, then we do get, uh, you know, good movement. But like I said, we've got relatively few comprehensive examples of success. Uh, we're, uh, we're developing these roadmaps ourselves right now. We're just uh, beginning to get enough scale with people to be able to do this. Uh, so I, I think um, I think it'll happen, but I don't underestimate the work that this is going to take. Could you, I wonder, uh, uh, since you referred to, you have some examples where it has worked, talk us through one example uh, of, of uh, an area where you've seen the most impact 
And another yeah. area that you that you would like to tackle, but but you're still working on it. Well, the the, the uh, I'll give you two examples. The, the first example, which I think we made the most progress, but still only only sort of beginning, is in the area of uh, childhood uh, hearing loss. Uh, and uh, there we actually been working on a program for four or five years where we've uh, not only found ways of, uh, of uh, screening um, <clears throat> an underserved population, finding, <coughs> excuse me, finding uh, uh, patients or children who do need help, um, which are completely treatable if found early enough, um, engaging community workers to do the screening, uh, linking with a uh, local uh, provider who can then provide um, diagnosis of the data that the community worker then sends remotely, and then actually doing the treatment if necessary um, based on the condition. Uh, we scale this to hundreds of thousands of children who, who have already screened. Uh, we've only done it in India, a little bit in Bangladesh, but mostly in India with one big partner in Delhi, and we're slowly expanding it to other locations in India. So this childhood hearing um, program is our most uh, mature and sophisticated, uh, which, we're, uh, which we're growing pretty rapidly now. Uh, but again, like I said, only in a few locations in India, um, and uh, this problem is a worldwide problem, and, and mostly an, underserved, um, an emerging market problem, because in developed countries uh, where people have access to care, this is taken care of uh, before any problem happens. But in emerging markets, little infection or something gets out of control, and it, before you know it, a child becomes deaf and it was completely preventable. So, so that's the program which uh, we're, we're working on. The, the one that I'd like to do to really move more quickly is actually uh, diabetes, childhood diabetes, where we've got um, uh, you know, real knowledge. Uh, it is, a, again, a very targeted population, completely uh, treatable if, if treatments are made available. Um, a big uh, issue of both uh, awareness and finding these children, and second, uh, uh, training physicians to, to, to deliver it uh, remotely as well as um, uh, directly, making the medication and other, other capabilities available for these children. Uh, this is one that uh, we'd like to move quickly on. Blood pressure is another one that's adult blood pressure, hypertension measurement, which we actually started a program in Kenya where, uh, again, it's in its early stages. That's a little more difficult because the target population is much more diverse. All kinds of people have, um, have uh, hypertension for a variety of reasons, and narrowing it down to a singular target where you can actually um, make a measurable difference uh, with clear cause and effect is a little more difficult, but one we're working on as well. So those are some examples of uh, things that we're doing. Uh, that's great. Thank you. Uh, are any technology innovations uh, uh, in the works that might help uh, make these solutions not just scalable but also affordable to underserved populations? Well, you know, in the end, uh, the, the scalability has to go with affordability. So you cannot scale without affordability. But affordability uh, can happen if there's a real ecosystem that's developed um, that can that can kind of pay for it. The, the, the two really go together. Uh, so we don't think of it separately. Right. Um, the, my favorite example in, um, in, in, in sort of highlighting why they should be thought together is that I can take um, a box of um, Medtronic's latest pacemakers uh, that are used in developed markets, in, in emerging markets, and I can take it to a secondary hospital in India, and I can give them the box of pacemakers, and I can tell it will be wasted because they won't even know what it is. And, and, and yet here it is, I've given you something of very high technology, free, and it cannot be used because without infrastructure awareness and training, that's not going to happen. So these things do go together uh, and, uh, and not differentiated. In almost all situations, there's technology involved. Um, in the hearing loss, we created technology uh, through which you could do diagnosis, um, uh, sort of look at the inside of the ear through an otoscope, which is a traditional device, but that's a plug-in into a simple a mobile phone, the picture gets taken and transmitted to the doctor who then reviews it. Uh, we're building artificial intelligence in that picture to give, uh, to give uh, you know, quicker uh, diagnosis if necessary. Um, so, so that's one example of uh, technology being used. I think we're using iPad technology for the hypertension measurements, so it can be made widely available, low-cost uh, 
iPad uh, technology made available to physicians who can then um, uh, have software that's downloaded onto the iPad who can give them decision support as they, um, as they manage these patients. There are other uh, technologies that we're developing in the area of surgery where we can do uh, low-cost surgery in, low, in um, relatively low infrastructure settings in different countries, but those are much earlier in, in our, uh, in more in a conceptual phase right now. And so, so there's a variety of things going on. I mean, I'd say that there's probably a dozen odd programs, uh, technology-based programs, as part of the Applied Innovation Lab that we're looking at right now as to how to scale those over time. So, Mr. Shrak, how about even um, sort of from Medtronic's point of view, um, investing in some of these impact enterprises, I mean, who are, you know, frankly, in the market and operating in the healthcare system, you know, with very affordable um, technology that they're bringing and the healthcare system and the services. So is there a plan for Medtronics to do that or are you already doing it? Do you want to share some thoughts around that? Well, you know, this is, we don't view this as, a, as an investment opportunity per se, but we will invest in a partner uh, who's willing to partner with us in solving a specific problem. So if there is, a, if there is a, an entity that is already doing this, that's in an area that we can add value in some way, then we would invest in that company. I'd say build a partnership. The nature of the investment would depend on, on the specifics, but we would build a partnership with that entity to deliver the, the solution. So we are really problem-focused, trying to solve this problem and, and then to see who are the, I'm calling them partners, but you can call them entities if you like, entities who are already in that mix who can help solve that problem, and uh, if they're complementary to us in that way, we would absolutely invest in them. So, so I was just saying that, um, you know, obviously, uh, you, you know, Medtronics is doing a fantastic job in connecting the, the back street and Wall Street I mean, with everything, everything that you're doing. So uh, one last question for me, and which is, how can we take this message to the other corporates um, and encourage them to do the same? I mean, uh, what would you tell them? What would you tell to your fellow CEOs who are out there um, and uh, who can be doing the same and, and obviously seeing the same fantastic results? Why should they do it? Yeah, I, look, I, I think, first of all, um, there is a, a pretty deep interest in, um, in working in this area. And, you know, I've met my colleagues from other companies, the CEOs and other management teams. There is a deep interest, certainly in healthcare. The World Economic Forum actually has an initiative that pulls together uh, companies doing programs like this and trying tries to create, um, you know, uh, government relationships so that these, can, these programs can be facilitated. So there's an interest. And even amongst companies uh, who... Uh, uh, who are non-healthcare, uh, providing healthcare to their employees or in the region that their employees live is, is not an unnatural thought, and they have all kind of worked on it. I think the one thing that we can do is to move away from this being a charitable enterprise to one that's an impact enterprise, where we measure our success in terms of the amount of impact that we make as opposed to the money that we give. And I think... Um, that, that is a bridge that most companies do have to cross, but if it's explained to them, they will cross it because it's an in, that's their ultimate goal. It's just that just providing charity does not necessarily uh, deliver the impact. Um, to deliver the impact, a number of things have to happen. There has to be some standardization of what an impact is in healthcare. That doesn't exist today. Um, and, uh, and the other notion that uh, it's a non-for-profit, you know, becomes too confused with the word charity. I think the impact, if you create impact, you create value. And you, in fact, do create money. The difference is that the margin that you create, you reinvest to make even more impact. So, you know, things that you're working on, things that uh, I've been very, become very interested in is, is uh, how do you standardize uh, the impact in healthcare? How do you measure that? First of all, how do you define it? How do you measure it? And uh, I think if we can do that and create a, um, a, um, a clear definition of that, we can engage other companies to sort of um, contribute to that and think of it the same way. And a lot of money that's being spent today can be used more effectively. Right. And if we can, add, of course, attach value to it um, and uh, yes. the financial yes. market. The impact only, has value. That's, that's what's the whole. Exactly. Defining the value uh, is what impact would be. But I think that does require standardization. And it's not as simple as the number of people you touch. Because you may right. touch. No, absolutely. 
may, may not have had the outcome. So you, you need to do both. I, I will say one more thing here. Um, you know, I would suggest strongly that uh, you don't call this thing last mile delivery because it's not the last mile. It's the last thousands of miles. Because more people, <laughs> this is not the last bit of healthcare. More needs to be solved than has been solved. So, you know, I know what you mean by this, but this cannot be an afterthought in, in people who are in healthcare. That's what the last mile means. I've done my job, I've just got a little more to go, I'll do it. It's not that at all. In fact, we're just scratching the surface and we've got a lot to do. And that's what we've got to do. So, um, you know, I know the intent, but uh, whatever that's worth, that's just some uh, feedback, uh, uh, you know. Based on what you just said, can I just take a minute more to ask you a follow-up question on that? Sure, sure. Of, of, of the thousands of miles that are left to go, yeah. in your most imaginative dreams, what is the biggest problem you'd like to solve? Well, <laughs> you know, that's the problem with this because uh, I cannot parse this into one. Any problem is big. My, my situation here is that if I take anything, a niche thing, a little grain of sand in healthcare, and I truly scale it, that's big enough. That's big enough. So, so my concern is not looking at, uh, you know, what specific problem I'm going to solve. I got plenty. Everything from, you know, uh, rheumatoid, uh, you know, cardiac, uh, heart disease, rheumatic heart disease, uh, to the diabetes problem I talked about, to hypertension, to something as simple as hearing. Any one of these make a huge impact on people and individuals. Literally millions and tens of millions, if not billions, of people. So what's more important for me is to find out, you know, how can I engage others and solve it? And I'm not that hung up about one specific problem. It could be, you know, kidney failure, you name it. I, I can go anywhere. And there isn't a problem that, that if solved, would impact literally tens of millions, if not more, of, of people positively straight away. People, solutions which already exist. We know this is not clinical mysteries. These things work. And people who I know can be saved are not being saved. Their families are being affected. So that's, that's the way I think about it, that, you know, what can I do as opposed to what is it that I want to do? How can I, what, what are the elements that are required uh, to create the infrastructure and deliver a solution? Because I can pick virtually anything and I scale it and it'll make a huge difference. Mr. Shark, thank you so much. This was, this was really fantastic, very inspiring. Thank you for the fantastic work you're doing. And, thank uh, you. Thanks for, thanks for the, and the questions that you have. And uh, again, I'm, uh, let's work together on this impact uh, area, which I think No, absolutely, do. absolutely. You're listening to From the Backstreet to Wall Street, I'm Mukul Pandya, Editor-in-Chief of Knowledge at Wharton. Our guest today is Dr. Parvi Zubed, and uh, he is the Managing Director of ERC, and uh, which is an absolutely amazing um, organization. ERC Eye Care, it was started in 2011, it's based in Assam, India, which is in the northeast of India. And uh, ERC provides a market-based solution to eye care for the poorest of the poor. Um, by providing uh, professional kind of diagnostic um, services and uh, qualified um, optometrics, and while doing all this with very low cost, making it extremely patient-centric. So um, welcome to the show, Parvez. We're absolutely super excited to have you here. Um, so Thank you, uh, Doreen. Thank you, Mr. Pandey, for giving me this opportunity. And uh, it will be good if we just jump right in and, uh, you know, tell us about ERC. And just for our audience, I think it will be good if you can um, paint a picture of Assam. You know, where is ERC, you know, operating? I mean, it's right. uh, so, it will right. be wonderful for us to get the picture and get a good understanding before you tell us about the business. Right. So uh, uh, thanks, Doreen, for the introduction, and uh, I am Dr. Parviz. I live in Jorhat. Uh, that's a small town in Upper Assam. So to give you a perspective, it takes around 10 hours by flight from Delhi to reach Jorhat, and you have to change two, two flights minimum to get here, and there is just one flight that moves out. And I am an ophthalmologist by training, 
uh, that means I'm an eye doctor and I completed my residency in 2007 from Guwahati Medical College, that's the capital of Assam. So Assam is a population of approximately 3 crore uh, persons right now and adjoining Assam are other smaller states which are hilly areas. Assam is a plain state and there are 6 plus 1, so we call it the 7 sisters. So these constitute the northeastern region of the remote part of India. And uh, so, yeah. So, do you and the topography, Pervez, the topography of Assam, of course, we all know Assam for the amazing tea that we get from Assam. And that is because it's very hilly. It's sort of the foothills of the Himalayas. Um, and some places are quite inaccessible, right? It's hard to, to get to some of these remote villages. Right. So, so Assam, like... Uh, is is a landlocked area of India. There is a small 22-kilometer uh, width connection between the rest of India and uh, the northeast region. The people of Assam are mainly into agriculture. So after the tea plantations were opened by the British and the local, some of the local people, tea plantations have taken a large industry and many people are involved in that trade. But besides that, most of the people are into agriculture and, and live on marginal incomes because uh, Assam is also the place where it's, it's very much affected, one, by floods and lack of infrastructure to an extent, and also by lack of uh, access to the norm, formal economy that's in the rest of India. That's changing a little bit nowadays, but even then, it's still a little behind the, the rest of the country to an extent, yeah. And that also means the fact that, um, I mean, we all obviously know India has, has made, made great inroads, but it's still, in terms of a lot of the sectors, it still has a lot of, uh, um, you know, a lot of things to do, and one of the things is in the, in the healthcare sector. And so with that, I would say Assam is, is really, in, you know, way behind, right, in terms of the services that, it, that people can get. Yeah, so we see we see changes coming in, but uh, those changes are a little bit relatively slower than the other parts of the country and other parts of the world. So is that what got you to start ERC? Um, tell us a little bit. I mean, you started right. in 2011 right. with only $6,000, right. right? So t tell us, tell us right. Why, right. why you started it. Right, so I started ERC with $6,000. And uh, the idea behind starting ERC was not to, not to build a scalable large chain of hospitals to cover the whole region, but it was a simple idea uh, that we had in mind to, 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 really, to, to provide services in a way where people wanted. So when I passed out in 2007, I uh, had the opportunity to work in NGO sector eye hospitals with the government sector and also in the corporate sector in a short span of four years. And by 2011, I, I knew I had to do something. I did not know the scale because I did not have the money or the expertise to think about scale at that point. But I thought, why not start a small clinic in Jorhat to try out things which I found were pain points for, for patients. I mean, accessibility was one issue. Affordability was another issue. Inclusiveness was another issue. But the most important issue I, I, I could see was the lack of dignity in accessing services which were not paid for. When people access services which were either free or donated by somebody, there was a lack of uh, dignity for the person. And, 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 and when we think that the aspiration of the BOP is not the same as the aspiration of the middle segment or the uh, upper income segments, then we are totally wrong. So that realization came in. And with that, I started ERC with uh, 6,000 US dollars as a seed investment from my own <laughs> funds and, and using my mother's kitchen, converting it into an office and a clinic with two rooms and, and started doing camps just to see whether, whether there was any way we could do and provide solutions in a sustainable manner to the, to the population of the Northeast. Having said that, so according to a World Health Organization study in 2005, 40% of the people of the Northeast had some forms of visual problems. 
And the good news was that 80% of that could be corrected with either a simple pair of glasses or a simple cataract surgery. So we knew that we had the data, but we were trying to find out how to deliver that to the BOP person. Right. So, so that's interesting. So just, again, for our audience, uh, just a few numbers uh, just to uh, share with them, which is the fact that you started in 2011, and, uh, you know, over the last basically six years, you have provided, uh, you know, healthcare, you know, basically eye service to over 1.3 million patients. I mean, that's unbelievable. Um, and all of that, of course, with low, very low cost and uh, with a very interesting hub and spoke model, right? So, so tell us that about that a little bit, um, and then we'll sort of talk about, of course, how you grew. I mean, why did you use that model, and how does this work? So, uh, so once we started in 2011, gradually we were, we were looking at uh, which. Uh, at, uh, gradually we started exploring what will be the best way to work out, and since I had access, no access to any kind of funding. So I was bootstrapped and I tried to find the most efficient way to reach out to the people. So I realized from the data that and from our groundwork that most of the people, 40%, almost 43% people who had low vision needed a simple pair of glass. So now for giving that glass, you don't need a hospital, you don't need a big setup. You just need a techni technical person with a know-how to prescribe glasses and you need to reach out to the persons in the rural areas. That's how we started the vision center, which are low capex units, centers in rural areas. And that's how we started the mobile unit, which are vans moving out to further interior areas to give uh, access and eye care to the person. So then we realized that we, while we are addressing the need of the eyeglasses, the rest, that is the 33%, out of the 80, 43% glass people needed glasses, the rest 30, 35% people needed eye surgeries. So while we kept referring them to government setups, the idea was not working because people either did not want to go, people were not happy, there was some corruption in, 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 that, in that system. And ultimately, we thought that we had to open our own hospital. And that's how we started looking at a model where we had a vision center in the rural area for primary eye care, further extending the reach through a mobile unit van, with all of which is connected to a urban, city-based, large eye hospital that provides secondary eye care in terms of cataract surgery primarily, besides providing other services like refractive error correction or other common eye problems. <clears throat> so that's how the hub and spoke model came in, <clears throat> where we had two to three um, <clears throat> vision centers connected with one mobile unit and one hub hospital. So that was, we found out, was the least expensive uh, mode and the most efficient model to address the challenge that we had in our uh, in, in front of us. So although with the hospital did not come up much, it came up much later in 2015, where only when we had uh, a grant funding from the World Bank, the other things were proof of concept for investors to show how this model works and how it could address the needs at the basic level. So that's how the hub and spoke model came in, into being. And I guess this hub and spoke model, interestingly, is now um, you know quite pervasive. I mean, a lot of people see that this is this is extremely effective. Um, do you, right. do you, what are sort of still? I mean, you must have now that you're growing the business. I mean, what are the, some of the challenges that you're seeing in terms of uh, the services that you're providing or the growth? Uh, so when we started out, so I was a doctor. So like many entrepreneurs, we are from technical backgrounds. We knew the understood the problem. We knew the solution to an extent, but we did not have the business expertise. So one was lack of business expertise. So we are not businessmen. We were not businessmen at that point. To, 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 to understand how to monetize things in a profitable manner, to keep things in a sustainable way. The second was lack of capital. So when you live uh, almost 10 hours by flight away from New Delhi, or other financial capital of India like Mumbai, you are not connected to non-conventional modes of funding. So the only funding you might get is from a bank where they will want a collateral, which you are not going to get because your model is not proved. So ultimately, lack of capital was the second most important challenge that we had. And third was the catch-22 situation related to the second point. 
So you have to have a proof of concept. So even if you know the people need eye care in the rural areas, you can give glasses to them. They can get their surgeries in hospitals. Every investor, every bank will ask you a proof of concept. So we were fortunate in that we got small grants, first from Mahindra and Mahindra, second from the World Bank, and a small amount of seed funding to be able to uh, make the concept a reality, have some proof of concept, and then go into the next stage. So I think the business expertise, the lack of capital, and the catch-22 situation with the proof of concept are the three most important challenges for us. Right. But I have to say for uh, Mukul, uh, you will appreciate this and in our audience that while Pervez is saying that he's not an entrepreneur, he's very much an entrepreneur because <laughs> he actually reached out to IAX um, through my LinkedIn. So he, he reached out to me through LinkedIn, uh, you know, completely out of the blue. And uh, now we are closing around with you for a million dollars, right? So which is absolutely fabulous. So you have that absolute entrepreneurial spirit of making it happen. Uh, so, so tell us, tell us what you're going to do with the funding that's coming in now. I mean, how is this going to, you know, all the lives that you're going to impact, and how, how, what are you going to do with it, with the capital? So, as uh, during, as you already said, we have uh, impacted the lives of more than 1.35 lakh people till now, and we are now very confident about our business model. And this funding round, we, we like to call it the pre-series A because this funding round will help us on the back-end processes. One, scaling up a little bit, I mean opening a few more hospitals, going into a new geography, and, and preparing ourselves for a large scale-up in an after two years. So this funding round primarily is for making our internal things all right. I mean, we have a lot of, because we deliver, we, we are both a product company, you can say, and a services company. In terms of we provide services of healthcare, we provide products like eyeglasses. So that, that's challenging, and uh, we need a lot of stock keeping, a lot of processing of products to be ultimately give them to the end beneficiary or client. So that, that is where we need to invest. We need to build a brand, number two. And as I said, we need to open a few more hospitals just to have a better revenue number for the next fundraise. So, so, uh, so uh, Praveen, what, what you have done so far seems really remarkable. Uh, one question I have for you is what do you think other social entrepreneurs could learn from your experience? What are some of the key lessons you think that uh, they could learn from you? I think so. So my journey started with Google. So I did not know I was a social enterprise. I did not know anything except for the word called angel funding because I am from a medical ground background. And then I purchased books like Philip Kotler and all and lots of MBA books. Then I knew what a business model is, how to, what is a SWOT, and those kinds of things, how to make uh, EBITDA. So I think that was a long and painful journey for me. And I was lucky to an extent, but even then, but I would say that for a new uh, person, I think they should look and get help from organizations like IIX, which have programs for entrepreneurs like me to, to introduce them to the ecosystem one and to make their business models investable as per the needs of the investors. Because not, it's not always that the investor and the entrepreneur looks in the same direction. So organizations like IIX build the capacity of entrepreneurs to look in the same direction. That's one. Then you need to build your internal capacity. So once you start doing something, it's not only about the client and the you, I mean the customer and the you, but you need to have the capacity to serve that customer in a large number. So unless you can scale up, if you are treating, I can providing, if I'm providing glasses to just one person, that's not going to create any impact. I can provide it with my own clinic in Jorat and no need to scale up. But if you really want to do something, change something, then I think you need to scale up and that need, needs capacity for which, again, you need to, need to have the right people, have, create the core team, and again, look for help. And the third and the most important thing, I think, is uh, you should focus uh, as an entrepreneur into the business and the other related things like business model, how to make Excel sheets, how to see how much profit, what are the costs? Those things you can leave out to experts. They are experts who might 
help you out in a pro bono way. There are experts which might help you out in a low-cost manner. There are many people out there. So if you are connected to the ecosystem, that should not be a problem. So one, focus on your business, build your capacity, and look and get help. Perfect. No, that, that was actually, I mean, that, you know, very, very wise, um, you know, um, view of how, how to grow a business. And, I mean, in terms of sort of looking at the future, I mean, when you, you know, you have said that your vision is for every person to have the right to see, which I think is beautiful. I mean, that is, I mean, you know, you can't be more on spot than that. So in order to be kind of able to work and lead a productive life, um, regardless of the person's age and gender, I mean, what do you think needs to happen in the next five years for this, for your vision to be a reality? I mean, is it a sum going beyond the sum? I mean, how do we get, you know, get everyone that you can reach out to, uh, to have vision? Yeah. So I care is interesting in terms of everybody needs I care. So if you go by medical statistics, everybody at the age of 40 will need a minimum reading glass to read the book or the newspaper to see the mobile phone. Everybody has a mobile phone nowadays. And if he goes on to live a longer life, then he will have more eye problems, uh, which is not uh, being fortunate, but that's how the way it is. But so you might have cataract, you might have a lot of other issues for which you might need an uh, eye problem. And nowadays, with the change in the living style of people, and especially in the Northeast where people rely on handloom as a major source of livelihood, cottage industry. So they need to see well, and even for people who do not are not associated with the industry, just to see the mobile phone, for example, they need to have a good eyesight. So I think uh, the market is very large, and but the challenge is not the market, because you are not looking at the market that, that tried, tested, and which is already established that is the market for the upper segment and the medium income segment. Now we are talking about the market at the base of the pyramid, and the market at the base of the pyramid is not something that, okay, I have developed a business model. Now I will just rescale it, replicate it, and reach everywhere across the world. So right now, as an organization, our aim is to cover Southeast Asia. So we have similar kind of people, similar aspirations, similar culture. I mean, when you talk about uh, Bhutan, you talk about Bangladesh, you talk about Myanmar, you talk about Philippines, you talk about Vietnam. So people are similar, with similar income levels. But but if I say that, okay, I'll just replicate it and keep on delivering the same products and services while I go forward, that will be a completely wrong concept. Because I think I have learned, what I have learned is that the most important focus for the company should be a continuous process of listening to the clients and delivering products and services that suit their needs and aspirations. And that will be the key to the sustainability and the scaling up across the geography. So with time, needs may change, aspirations may change. Earlier, the, the, the market thought that the BOP was a different market segment. They did not want anything that the upper income segment could afford. It was seen by consumer companies that if they make the packet small, as in the case of large companies like Unilever, where they made one rupee packets for the Indian consumer. Everybody in the rural uh, households bought the same shampoo that the person in Delhi bought. So that, that's a continuous process of listening. So we have to keep on listening in every geography and in every time period we are looking at to be able to deliver on what we think we can in the near future. Right. But I think, Parvez, you know, it's very interesting. Um, you bring up a good point, um, which is the fact that, yes, absolutely, we have to think of the bottom of the pyramid. But first of all, I like to say they're not the bottom of the pyramid, although the term was coined by, uh, you know, uh, Professor Prahalad. I, I say they're the core of the pyramid, right, because they are, right. frankly, 80, 90 percent of the population, you know, right. of each of these countries that you're mentioning. But also, very importantly, something that you're doing, and I think uh, most of the impact enterprises are doing, which uh, the large corporations are not, is the fact that you are providing a service, but also you're looking at creating livelihood for these people. So just as you said yourself, you know, they have now vision that they can actually carry on their trade of working on handlooms and making those, those products. And that's a very strong correlation 
in terms of not only seeing them as consumers, but they're also seeing them as, as producers. And I think, you know, you know, on that note, I'm also sort of curious how you see this whole movement of the mobile phone and some of the technology that's being used. You know, now you can get um, uh, their enterprises who are looking at getting images, you know, from the mobile, uh, sorry, from the remote area and then doing the diagnosis um, in, in your uh, hub model, I guess, hub and spoke model, the bringing it back to the clinic and doing this in a remote basis. Do you see some of those things coming in into your operation as well to make it even more efficient? So my uh, observation in this area would be that most of those things are in a, in a testing stage, and I am yet mm-hmm. to see something which is truly applicable in case of uh, technology. I mean, so apart from whatever technology is being used for medical treatment of eye care, which is established and used for both the upper income, middle income, and lower income segments, like standard medical care. Apart from that, innovative things like mobile technology to get images, to to uh, to get the eye checked via doctors in the hub hospital, for example. So that's that's working in some aspects. But that's not standard acceptable procedure just because things have not been standardized. There are challenges in terms of mobile internet connectivity. There are challenges in terms of the end user not having a proper uh, smartphone. They might have a simple phone. So there are a lot of challenges. I I don't see immediately technology being an all-pervasive solution. I mean, new technology being an all-pervasive solution to the problem as such. Right. Now, which is a very practical way of of approaching it. Um, Mukul, do you have any other questions? Uh, Yeah, I mean, uh, just uh, to react to what uh, Parvez said earlier, uh, when you said you, uh, what you have done depends on, has has, uh, been to listen to the needs of the people you're trying to serve. So what sort of new directions do you think you uh, might be pulled into as as you try to serve you know, the emerging needs of the patients you're trying right. to serve? So, 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 so that's some, we use something called a human-centered design. So that's a standard, I mean, concept, and that uses the here, create, and the deliver approach. So having said that, so we have learned a lot of things. For example, we have a 10 days guarantee for our optical product. So people might ask me why. It's, the why is because we have learned that the people do not want to take a chance while spending their money because they have so little disposable income. Mm. So we tell them, we give guarantee, if you do not see with our product, we, we will give your money back, whatever you invested. That's one example. Similarly, we are always keep, uh, so while talking to clients, we call them clients, neither patients nor beneficiaries, because uh, we think that, that we are there to serve them and they are paying us. So we, these clients keep on telling things. For example, one of the things that they want is the immediate delivery of glasses. Like They also have a demand like, I, do, I want my glass today. So when he says, I want my glass today or I want my glass in the next 48 hours, sometimes it's challenging for us because we don't have the back-end capacity to to make a prescription lens. We have the stock lenses ready for immediate delivery, but many people have complicated powers and we have to procure the same from metro cities like Kolkata or Guwahati. So we will invest in the back end, as I said earlier, to uh, to have the capacity internally to make those lenses and deliver it to the client on time. So, and and right now we have a, we have a process of calling each client at the end of the uh, treatment uh, end of the treatment to to ask him to score give us a score of based on one of ten and if he gives us a score of less than eight nine we ask him why and then try to look at the reason and see if we could rectify that so this process is now based on one person calling up everyone but that also needs to be uh, backed up with a little bit of technology and more resources so that it becomes a more systematic and a scaled-up process. Great. All, all that sounds amazing. I think we are almost out of time. So, Doreen, do you have any final thoughts? No, no. This was absolutely fantastic, Parvez. Thank you so very much. Um, you know, you really are an amazing entrepreneur and obviously an amazing doctor. So 
So thank you, and uh, thank you for the fantastic work you're doing. Thank you, thank you, Doreen, for giving me the opportunity and all the help that IX has been extending. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.